Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Snark Monkey number 30. And this is Michael Reagan. So what's it like to be the adopted son of two very high-profile Hollywood stars, one of whom goes on to be not only the governor of California, but a two-term quite popular president of the United States? That can make for a fascinating journey eh? all by itself. But Michael went on to have a very successful career in radio. Many in the conservative world continue to look for him as someone who is maintaining and promoting and protecting the name Reagan and its legacy. Michael likes to say that he doesn't really enjoy talking politics that much, but I get him to talk politics. You may not agree with everything he has to say, both politically and personally, and I get that. I don't necessarily agree with everything Michael has to say either, but he certainly has criticism for both sides of the aisle, especially in terms of how they bring up his father. He also has a lot to say about the way he was raised. He had a rather troubled childhood. He's written about it quite a bit. And he's also doing some pretty important stuff when it comes to protecting young children. And uh, even that you might find a little controversial in how he approaches it. But you can be the judge of that. Uh, I certainly think that Michael's journey and what he saw and what he lived through is very interesting. And uh, for that reason alone, I've known Michael for years. He's always treated me so well. He's been so respectful of me. And he was gracious enough to come in and sit for about an hour and talk about his life, uh, what he's experienced, and some stories that I had never heard before. So check this out. And for those of you listening to the for the first time, because you're kind of wondering what has Michael been up to, well, welcome. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Michael Reagan on Snark Monkey, number 30. Enjoy. Stuff, but I gotta get to here. Get that microphone in front. You remember how to do this, right? <laughs> Hello? 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 Is anybody there? Hello? Apparently, you don't remember how to do this. Hello? Hello? One eight hundred Mike. Put put it up closer to your one eight hundred. Oh, good lord! You're not in national. You're not on NPR now, are you? Hi. <laughs> this is Mike Reagan. Welcome. I mean, how how long has the Michael Reagan show been off? Now. Been off since January of 2009. Okay. How much has changed just in the way we communicate with each other in that time? You think about that. You're not on the Twitter or Facebook. Oh, or no, anything. I tweet. I'm a Republican that actually tweets. You do? Oh, yeah, I know how. No, I have to go follow you now. At Reagan World. You do? Because 400 people took my name, so I'm at Reagan World. <laughs> 
So, <laughs> are you verified? Do you have a little check? No, I, nobody can believe I can't get verified. I mean, <laughs> I've talked to I can't get verified because I met Reagan World. I said, who are you verifying as Mike Reagan? <laughs> My daughter, Ashley, tried to get me verified. Friends of mine tried to get me verified. So there's a bunch of what. Michael Reagans out there, but uh, you're the only real one and you can't get verified. That's right. Everybody, no. everybody wants to be me, but I can't be me. So do you like to tweet? Do you, well, I, oh, do you find that a kind of a... Yeah, I have about 52,000 followers. That's good. And and so and I, I do that. I got to follow you. So people know that I'm like alive. <laughs> They're like, you're not doing radio anymore. I mean, everybody always says to me, what are you doing? And it's like when you go off radio, like, what are you doing? Well, when you're out of the any sort of public medium, and you know people want to lament that radio is dying or whatever, but it's still this powerful medium that you can get out to a lot of people at one time. Oh yeah, I just tell them I'm robbing banks. <laughs> That's what I tell them. I said I'm robbing banks. I said, in fact, last week I was I robbed a bank, shot and killed six tellers. You read about it? I said, of course you didn't. But I said it was so nice because the officer who was arresting me. I took a selfie because he couldn't believe he was arresting the son of the president of the United States, his favorite president. And his father loved my father and would love to have a selfie with he and me. And so I said I was busy taking selfies with the police officer who was going to arrest me. Yes. Yes. That's my life. It truly is my life. You're, well, you're not robbing banks. Let's just be clear. No, about I'm not that. robbing banks, but I'm thinking about it. <laughs> but, but seriously, it, it's it's the life you live. It, it, you it doesn't matter what you do when you have iconic parents. It's like, okay, what do you do other than have iconic parents? And and so people are always asking, and what is it you do? <laughs> and you're going, oh, my God. I yeah. mean, they, they don't know. Like I tell people, I said, well, at 1960s, I was outboard world champion, powerboat racing, right. inboard rookie of the year. Uh, 1966, I was inboard rookie of the year, 67, outboard world champion. I set five world titles and records in the 1980s. You know why I was racing boats in the 1980s? Why? Nobody gave me a job. <laughs> why wouldn't they give you a job? Well, your father's Ronald Reagan. Your mother's Jane Wyman. You, you don't, need, don't to need to work. Oh, no, you were born rich and famous. They're yes. taking care of you. So, And the Republicans think that, too. And Tell so Republicans wouldn't give me any money to work. And the Democrats, <laughs> hell, they'd stay away from me. Hell, you had to, you got, you sung so low, you had to get into radio. Look oh, at yeah, that. I had to, that's right. <laughs> you know, that happened. I was over at KBC Radio. Uh-huh. My my wife, Colleen, who moved out to California in 1972, I think, or 73, early 73, her and her friend uh, lived together uh, in Kansas. And one went to New York, and Colleen came to California and said, We'll figure out which one of us like where we're living. The other one will move the other direction. So Kitty, Colleen's friend, moves out to California. She gets the job with George Green. She's the one in charge of syndicating Michael Jackson, Ray Bream, and all that group at KBC when they started syndication. In Los Angeles, right. And and out to the rest of the country. Right. And so what happens is we're going to have lunch with Kitty. Colleen and I are going to meet at KBC. I go in there. She introduces me to George Green. And we talk for a little bit. And then... We said, we're headed to lunch, and George Green says, well, you have a nice personality. Ever thought about being in radio? And I said to him, I said, you know, I wake up every morning thinking about that, but nobody ever asks. <laughs> and he says to me, he says, well, Michael Jackson's taking Monday off. Why don't you sit in for him? So I sat in Monday morning, July 12th, 1983. My first interview was Charles Carroll on the road with. Oh, wow. First interview. And 26 years later, I left. Did it immediately feel comfortable? Yeah, it really did. It did? Yeah. 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 You've always been a good talker. And I don't mean that in a, that may have sounded a little flippant. Yeah, look but. at the family I came from. <laughs> you know, if you wanted to eat, you had to learn to talk. Tell me some of the other, like, 
jobs you had over the years? When my dad became governor of California, I was working on a trucking dock in Los Angeles loading oil well freight from 5 at night to one thirty in the morning. Did they know you were that? Oh, my God. The kids on the – the kids the, – the guys on the dock, you know, they come up to me, your parents love you. I said, yes, of course they love me. Yeah, I don't think they love you. <laughs> what do you mean they don't love me? Well – my dad was going to become governor of California, and my mother was Academy Award-winning actress Jane Wyman. I wouldn't be working on no trucking dock in downtown Los Angeles. This is like 1965. Right. Watts riots times, right? Yeah. And I said, no, no, they love me. No, we don't think they love you. And so I started to believe them. And, and, well, there is some logic in that. I mean, did they take you out on the campaign at all? Were you part of the— like, No, the, not in 1966. I mean, I did some stuff with Republican women. Yeah, but you you weren't there, like, the group photo? I was a young guy. Yeah. No, they never took group photos. I think there's one group photo of the family, and that was taken, like, in 1976. Well, I'm in plaid pants and, and high heels, okay? Well, well you probably don't want <laughs> that, that out Remember there. that era where oh, we're, God. you know, hey, hey, we're all doing that deal? <laughs> you ought to see that picture. Oh, you can God. Google it. Woo! Well, was, was that even part of campaigning then, of— dragging the whole family around and no, the photo no, ops no. and all that stuff? No, no, no. It was just no. about the guy. It was, it was about the guy running for governor at the time, 1966. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting because I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, gotta, I hope my dad wins. And I said, because then I could get like a good government job like all the other kids of politicians. Sure. So I go down to the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, which existed back then, and I see my dad. I went out and had to buy a suit. I bought a corduroy suit because it was easy to get ready. And only suit I had. I go see my dad. I congratulate him on winning. And I say to him, what's the chances of getting a job with you in Sacramento? You know what I found out about my dad that night? He said, I don't believe in nepotism. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, of all the families to be adopted into, I get the one who doesn't believe in nepotism. And I thought to myself, I voted for the wrong guy. I really should have voted for Brown because he certainly believes in nepotism. And the proof is... His son is still the governor of the state. Again. Again and oh. again and again, yeah. Wow. So so none of the kids, none of the Reagan kids ever really kind of were given an opportunity in the administration or, or the no. government? No, not no. really. No, 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 no. I mean, we had no... Not, whether no, they had an interest or not. I mean, growing up in Beverly Hills with my mom, my sister and I were really enamored with Hollywood. I mean, we, and, and right. my mom used to say, well, you wouldn't like it. It's really a terrible business. And we're thinking to ourselves... I'm living in a mansion in Beverly Hills. I've got a maid. I've got a cook. I got a convertible Cadillac, a 1955 Thunderbird convertible. What's wrong with this business? <laughs> I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, Maureen and I are, they just don't want the competition. You know, kids they don't want competition from children. But they never opened a door to really allow us to get into the business yeah. and be part of of the business that they were in. You've talked about this. You've written about yeah. your childhood. And so I, I don't want to cover a bunch of territory you've covered before, but I am kind of fascinated with that era. And we talk a lot in this podcast about movies and TV and all that stuff. And you had really big stars around you a lot in your childhood, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, like major names. I, I tell you, I know people love Hollywood, but the Hollywood today is nothing what the Hollywood of yesterday no, you, truly you was. you kind of saw the tail end of that really glamorous, amazing time where stars were bigger than life, Yeah, right? but I came up, I remember, in 1940s, Hollywood wasn't born until 1925. Right, right. So, so it was still newish and... It was and, 20 years old when I was born. Yeah. So it's really still not that old. And, and, and so growing up in that era, I remember, gosh, my 10th birthday... 
or maybe it was, I'm sorry, my mother's 30th or 40th birthday. I forget which one it was. But my sister and I, and I, I tell this, I love telling this story when I go speak to, to Christian groups, because they always ask the same question. When did you know there was a God? And they always ask the same question. You know that question. When did you know that there was a God? Uh-huh. When did you accept Christ as your Savior? So this is your answer? And this is my answer. Uh-huh. My answer, I said, oh, I know exactly. And I said, my mother's birthday, I think she was turning maybe 30 or 40 years old. I said, my sister and I rode our bikes to Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills to buy something for mom. And I said, by the way, yes, we did have credit on Rodeo Drive. Every child in Beverly Hills had credit on Rodeo Drive in the 1940s and 50s. So you just, it was one of those, just put it on our tab kind of thing and walk mm-hmm. out the yeah, door? Yeah, just like Chasen's. Chasen's was, never, was always billed. You didn't pay when you went to Chasen's. You were billed when you left. They'd send you a bill at the end of the month. such a weird concept. And but they, yeah, what a weird concept. They actually trusted people to pay. What a concept. I know. And, and, and so I I'll tell him, I said, so anyway, we go down to Roosters, Uncle Bill and Aunt Peg. And there's this beautiful serving tray in the window, silver serving tray. And imprinted in the silver serving tray is this beautiful blonde woman laying in like satin sheets, it looks like, covered up to the shoulder. I said to my sister Maureen, I said, this would be great for mom for her birthday. And my sister Maureen, who's four years my senior, says to me, Michael, we can't get that for mom for her birthday. I said, why, it's really pretty. And Maureen says, no, we can't get that. We got to get something else. So anyway, older sister wins out. And we get something else. We have it wrapped, going to be delivered to the house. We ride our bikes back to to the house. I'm in charge of the door that night. And so I'm a little suit on with the doorbell ring. I answer the door and tell people where to go in the house. Doorbell rings. I open up the door. I'm looking at that silver serving tray, Marilyn Monroe. I said, that's when I knew there was a God. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wouldn't you? And let me tell you, when I tell that story, every man in the church goes, yeah, baby. (laughs) Yeah, baby. That's what I would have known. Amen. That's right. Wow. Oh, yeah. You don't need to tell me any more stories. You got a Marilyn story. That's all I need. Well, yeah, but my, my stepsister, Terry Carger... Uh, my mother married a man by the name of Freddie Carger after my dad. He wrote Gidget, From Here to Eternity, a few other hits wow. in his lifetime. Yeah. And Terry and I are great friends. Terry's best friend was Marilyn. And so she's writing a book that's going to come out this next year about the relationship she had with Marilyn. And her father, Fred, who taught James Darren how to sing, uh, uh-huh. Gidget is actually also worked with Marilyn and... Actually, they cut a record together that's still kind of in limbo, and Terry's trying to get the rights to it so she can own it, but somebody else is trying to, you know, it's a battle. What can I tell you? It's Marilyn Monroe. Wow. Yeah. Who, is, who are some other names that you... Cagney. Cagney was da- around? James Cagney, every Christmas, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Dad and Nancy's, James Cagney would knock on the door, and he would come in, he would spend the evening with us. He was really one of the true greats. He was, you know, there's a lot of guys who... Great on screen, like today, right. but you don't want to have dinner with him? Sure. Yeah, well, Cagney's one of these guys, you want to have dinner with him? Yeah. You want to be with this guy? Because he stores. had a reputation of being a, a little bit of a curmudgeon later in his life. Yeah, right. later in his life. But this guy, 4 o'clock on, yeah. on Christmas Day, and he would come up because he was in vaudeville with Nancy's mother. Yeah. Yeah. No, he and was a hooker. He was a singer-dancer oh, yeah. when oh, he was yeah. coming up. All these guys were. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, Cagney and... Yeah. And and all these people, I remember being being raised. I was just around them. I, I said that one night. McLean and I were speaking at a restaurant, and 
we were talking about Cagney. It was around Christmas. I said, well, God, remember Cagney used to come up every, every Christmas at 4 o'clock, and the bartender, like, almost fainted. And his name was Kenny. And I said, hello, you okay? He said, Cagney? You talking about James Cagney? Oh, my God, I love James Cagney. But that was my reality. And so I had a different reality than a lot of other people have at the time. So how do you think that – I mean, you, you you lived in rarefied air. Those mm-hmm. were big, 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 big names. But when – did you have aspirations truly to maybe do some acting, to try and do that? Besides yeah. just the fact that they had all these trappings of all these kind of amazing Yeah, but things. I didn't know how. I didn't trust yeah. myself because other things that happened to me when I was eight years old yeah. I wrote about and twice right. adopted. Right. So I had no, no self-esteem uh, in, in reality. And so it was nice being in my parents' shadow because everybody loved them. And I thought, hey, you know, if they love him and love her, they'll love me, that kind of thing. Mm. It still works out that way. I mean, people come up to me wherever I go, love your father. Right. Love your father. I have people come up to me. I love this one. I listen to you every night. (laughs) I'm thinking to myself, who in the hell are they listening to? I've been off the air since 2009. Love your show. Listen to you every night. Oh, boy. Maybe they're hearing voices. <laughs> you go like, okay. <laughs> but you do now. So, but you live a lot of your life now talking about your father and mm-hmm. being part of the Reagan Foundation. And so you, you've had to kind of come to terms with, I've got this famous name. And obviously, that's something you've been wrestling with one way or the other, mm-hmm. embracing and even pushing away at certain points in your life. You have a perspective but at the same time, you're also you want to be your own person. No, I mean, that, that's a that's a really fine line. I mean, where do you feel like you are with that now? Well, you, it, it's it's kind of interesting when I was doing radio. Yeah, number one gripe we used to get from program directors: he talks about his father too much. I said I never really talked about my father. Sean Rush, Mark, everybody else in the conservative industry talks about my father and continue to. By yeah. the way, yeah. and so if I mention him, he mentions him too much. I don't mention him. People call in and say I love your father. What am I supposed to say? That's yeah. too bad. Yeah. That's tough luck. Let me tell you what you're really getting here, buddy. But would they but that, throw you throw you on TV? That's like the first question. What would your father think of blah blah blah? I mean, it seemed like that was that's what everybody wanted to hear. Yeah, and so you tell them, and then and then they'll argue with you, and you go, wait a minute, well, I didn't see you at the dinner table, but yet you know more about my father than in fact I do. No, it, it is very tough. My wife and I started our own foundation, the Reagan Legacy Foundation, but it was started to raise money to, in fact, uh, help. Uh, secure better education for the kids who serve on the USS Ronald Reagan. We give scholarships away uh, to those kids on the on the on the Reagan. Uh, we also uh, embraced my father in Germany. We put in a Ronald Reagan exhibit, Checkpoint Charlie Museum in Berlin. I'm headed to uh, to Normandy here in a few days to break ground on the Ronald Reagan French American Freedom Conference Center. Oh. And part of the reason I, I did, Larry, is the fact when my sister was dying of melanoma in 2001. And she chased everybody out of the hospital room. And I started to leave. She said, where are you going? I said, well, you said everybody leave. She says, you're not everybody. You're my brother. You stay locked the door. So I did. And we had that brother-sister talk. And she said, you know, our dad has a wonderful legacy. Promise me, promise me that you will really help carry it because people will try to damage it. And so that's really kind of what I do. And I think every every day, every year that goes by, you're more and more people are learning about the kind of person he was. He was likable. He was relatable. Ronald Reagan was elected because Democrats and independents voted for him. Yeah. They didn't have to agree with him, but they liked him and trusted him. And we don't have that today. Well, I, we haven't seen that since, have we? No, we haven't. We, my, my sister, my, my daughter Ashley says it to me. Find me somebody who's likable and relatable 
It doesn't matter if I agree with them. I have to like them and relate to these people. Is that why every Republican candidate, potential candidate, I mean, his name gets trotted out every mm-hmm. single time, oh, whether, yeah. whether it's it's accurate or not. They find a way to connect. Why do you think – is it because of that, because of just pure popularity or uh, – and, yeah, and obviously – Because there, it's their last great leader they really, yeah. they really had. But like Ashley and I, when we talk, you know, she says, you know, I'm 32, Dad. I was born in 1983. You know, Grandpa was my grandpa, but he's not everybody's grandpa. My generation doesn't know who Ronald Reagan is. They have to find their own direction and their own leadership and their own likability and their own relatability because you can say Ronald Reagan all you want, but they don't know who he was. Yeah, it's just it's strange to me. I mean, I I guess it's great for the legacy Mm -hmm. of President Reagan that the name still comes up with such affection. You're right. He was one of those guys who crossed the lines so much so that it, it swept him into you know immense popularity. But the other side of the coin is that you have a lot of people talk about my father, mm-hmm. but we have this foundation. Said we, we opened up an exhibit in Berlin. We opened up a Ronald Reagan exhibit last year at Normandy, and we're building a building now. We opened up in 2016. We sponsored 14 D-Day vets to go back to Normandy for D-Day. Couldn't get on radio. All those people you think, you know, who trot his name out and, yeah, and, and it, reference it? Yeah, I, w- I was there at Normandy D-Day last year. Now, I can tell you conservative radio probably played my dad's 1984 speech 400,000 times. I'm actually at Normandy opening up the Ronald Reagan at Normandy exhibit. We've sponsored 14 D-Day vets. Have we not sponsored them? They would not have been able to visit on their 70th anniversary of D-Day. Three of those that we sponsored have already passed away. Couldn't get on radio. Could not get on, on radio. Got on an internet serious station, but could not get on the conservative radio stations. Didn't want to talk to me. Because it's not a hot button, you know, controversial topic because you're doing something positive. Yeah. <laughs> is, yeah. Is we'll it? play Ronald Reagan. We'd rather play Ronald Reagan's speech. Yeah. And you're going, hello? The only person that's really given a check, any conservative who's really given a check to our foundation to help was Rush. Nobody else. Nobody else. I, I No checks from any, any conservative you've ever heard of has, has not given me a check for the foundation, for what we do for the kids on the ship with the scholarship program. So we, we work our tail off doing that. But what people don't know, you're saying, talking a few minutes ago about, you know, you're doing the Reagan thing. Yeah. But what you don't know is I have a Mike Reagan Center in Texas. I work with Aero Family Ministries. We're right now mentoring 14 girls that we were able to take out of human sex trafficking to try and rehabilitate them. 400,000 children are, are, are taken out of their homes every year because of neglect and abuse. 400,000. No. But yes. that, that's, Four, that number is staggering. 400,000. You want to hear another staggering number? Yeah. Within 48 hours, your child running away from home, they are recruited into human sex trafficking. <sighs> there are 100,000 American children already in human sex trafficking. There are 300,000 on the cusp of getting into human sex trafficking. I mean, I deal with this all the time. Right now, I'm working with Congress. I helped pass a bill in the state of California last year with the Democrats, Assembly of Mike Gatto, that requires teachers down in the state of California to go through a training every school year to recognize child abuse. And if they don't report it, they're the ones held accountable. So I, I worked with the Democrats to get those things done. It is a terrible problem, but 
We have the Mike Reagan Center. We deal with adoption, foster care, abuse, and and mentoring to these groups and talking to these groups to try, in fact, help and find a, a window of opportunity for them. You know, 60% of the kids that right now age out of foster care, 60% end up on the streets, jail, or human sex trafficking. I have a book. I have a treatment in a book. In fact, it, it's done, and I'm sending it to publishers next week to see if anyone will talk to me, but they all want to talk politics. But the book is called America's Least Wanted. And and the whole premise of it is that your children might be better up being left in an abusive home than taken out of that home and put into a foster care system that abuses them even worse than what was Seriously? happening to them in their own home. Really? Well, ah. listen, okay, is it a success? I take you out of the home that's abusing you right. from the only people that you think love you and you love. No matter what we think it is, that's what they think. Because we look at things to adult eyes instead of the children's eyes. Right, right, and right. And we, we take them and we put them into a we foster We think we're care. saving them by, by, yeah. Yeah. Middle of the night, we take them away from mom and dad. And we put them into a foster care system where they may go through 13 or 14 homes before they age out at 18. How then we, we say, why are they mad? How do we fix that system? How do we do that? What you do is you start mentoring them in the home. You, you, st- you start mentoring them in the home and working with the home because 20 million children will go to bed tonight in America without a father in the home. 20 million. There begins the process of children raising themselves. Mm-hmm. Which we have, I mean, that's been going on long enough now where we have adults. We were just talking about this a little bit in relation to your family. Yeah. But, but it's a bigger issue, isn't it, in that we have grown-up adults who did not have any sort of parental guidance that really was substantial enough no, to they, give them a framework. Open a door. What it's for what it's like to be to have to exist yeah. on, on your own. If my smartphone didn't say open the door, I ain't opening the door. I mean, it really is kind of like that. <laughs> I mean, it really, really is. Whatever it, my smartphone says, I'm in. At what age did you find that you had to be when, – when would you say that you became truly independent, that you realized I'm kind of on my own? Six. Six? Basically, six years old. You, you feel like you have that, had that mentality that early. Six years old. I had to take care of myself. Our era, a Hollywood brat. Because mm-hmm. I was one of those Hollywood brats. Beverly Hills Hotel, Sunday afternoons. You know, you had, you had all the biggies. Sonny Werblin uh, was my mother's agent. Sonny Werblin, you might remember him. He's the guy who wrote the $400,000 check to, to, uh, for the American Football Conference to Joe Namath. Oh. Everybody laughed at him. Right. He ended up, when he passed away, uh, Uncle Sonny owned 21 Club, New York Knicks, Madison Square Garden. Mm. <laughs> Lou Wasserman, yes. who was his partner at Universal, right. MCA, was my dad's first uh, agent. And my dad was his first client. So we grew up with the Wassermans and all these people in, in Hollywood. But that era, all of us went to boarding school. Six years old, I was in boarding school Palos Verdes Peninsula. Yeah, there was there was very little time for hands-on uh, parenting. You were raised by nannies and maids yeah. and at, at boarding school. So you'd go to boarding school on Sunday night at 7. But what's cool about my mom is we'd always stop for dinner either at the Brown Derby or Chasen's on the way. Because, <laughs> you know, Maudie M- 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 Chasen and, and, and the whole thing was absolutely great. The Derby people. You were okay with that? Wouldn't you have rather gone to Pink's or something and, and, and gotten a... No, it's really kind of cool because they made me avocado uh, cocktails. I, you tell me, at Beverly Hills Hotel, I mean, not Beverly Hills Hotel, but the, the, uh, with the top hat and the brown derby brown and the whole derby. thing. Yeah. But, you know, it's like uh, 
so much history from that period of time uh, is you know unbelievable. We would go there for dinner, and then I would go to the to the school. I'd get there at seven o'clock at night, and then Dad would pick me up, or Mom would pick me up, or Dad would pick me up on Friday afternoon at four. I, I always knew when we were moving because the cab would pick me up. I mean, my mom moved like always. And so I never got to say goodbye. I just said hello to another house. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of crazy, but we all went to boys, Hope kids, Crosby kids, Joan Crawford's kids, all of us. We were the keepers of the secrets. All of you looked at these stars and went, hey, isn't that great? The look at these stars. You're so lucky. And, you, and we're going... We're boarding at school. We don't even know our parents. How lucky is that? And you're all talking talking amongst yourselves, too. Oh, we you've are. Got, you, you got all the deep, dark stuff. When Mommy Dearest was written, we grew up, we all grew up with that. Like, <laughs> you're like, yeah, old news. What happens yeah. is like Bing Crosby. I mean, we knew all of his. Yeah. Gary used to come to our house Saturday mornings. True story. Gary used to come to our house Saturday morning because we just lived down from them. Saturday mornings with his wrist cut. Because once again, he, Aunt Jane, I failed at committing suicide again. Oh, Gary, go upstairs, you know, wash your wrist, put a Band-Aid on, coming down for breakfast. Oh. But his two brothers put shotguns in their mouths, pulled the trigger. Right, right. And, and it, was just, it was horrendous, that era growing up, because the kids really were. That's where we coined the phrase, we're only there for the photograph. Because we were every photograph of me taken as a child taken by the studio every photograph every single one that was when they were trotting you out to, sh- to show the loving caring oh yeah they would do family. that and yeah. my birth mother irene who's from ohio my birth mother irene would go down to the uh magazine racks on sundays or saturdays and buy the movie magazines and she would see stories about ronald reagan and jane wyman because they were the hot ticket back in the 40s they were like whoever the hottest ones are today they were they it. were they were they were it in the nineteen forties. Good looking couple, absolutely. And she would take those and she would cut them out, the pictures, and then she would take them to a photography studio, and have the photography studio make prints. So when I met my birth brother Barry, and you'll find this is my birth Barry Barry Lang, was one of the writers at twenty one years of age. Barry is one of the head writers on Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> Seriously, true story. Wow, true story. Twenty one years old, made it out here to be part of Hollywood. One of the head writers in Laverne and Shirley, and and he said, "I'm 21 years old." He says, "I'm making more money than dirt." He says, and this, "He says all the drugs are now coming into Hollywood. I had a choice: put up my nose or leave." He said, "I left. Just walked away from it." He did. Walked away from. Never it. went back. Never went back. He is the person who put Babalu Mandel and Billy Crystal together. Oh, Bob! Yeah, Mandel was one of the writers for like most of the big movies right. he did. Babalu, Babalu, and Billy Crystal, who became a team. Yeah, he's the one that introduced them and put them together. Oh, yeah. So Barry and I talk. He lives in Ohio. We're great college what's he, what's football he, fans. What did he end up doing? After he that? runs a bunch of stores down there called Waterbeds and stuff. <laughs> Ten stores. Loves it. A great time. Married. Wow. Kids. Wow. Bailed Hold out them. of a promising career in Hollywood, like major writer. At 21 years old. Oh, yeah. One of my neighbors where I live, I told him that story, and he was one of the writers on The Sopranos in the very beginning. I told him that story. He said, look at me. I didn't leave. <laughs> I said, I know I can tell. <laughs> so I, I was a child 
of television. My, as opposed to boarding school, I, uh, the ba- uh, television babysat me. Uh, did you, like, were you going to movies? Were you, you know, scooting off and going to see stuff? Did you, or were you so immersed in Hollywood that you didn't care about No, no, Hollywood? no. Westwood. I mean, yeah. Westwood was our hangout. We went to the movies every Saturday. So, yeah. You and were like, if I wasn't at the ranch, I was always at the movies and, and, and what yeah. have you. Now, I had my fifth birthday party on one of my mother's sets in Warner's. Yeah, when she was doing, uh, she had a television series in the 50s. Right. And then, of course, the big one in the 80s called Falcon Crest. Of course. Yeah. Which you appeared on. I did six of those shows. I was at home and the phone rang and I answered the phone as my mom. Hi. I said, Hi, Mom. Where are you? I said, I'm at home. You need to come over to CBS. I said, why? I need a concierge. You what? <laughs> I need a concierge. I said, what do you mean you need a concierge? We wrote a concierge into the script. I need you over here. Get here now. <laughs> so I did six shows with my mother. It was kind of fun. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. And probably turn you off of acting. Yeah, I said, well, point. I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, you try to get away from mom, now she's got you in her own show. That's scary. <laughs> and, by the way, serving her in some way, Oh, too. yeah. And something else I'd like to mention. You know, my mom has two stars in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Handprints of Footprints, and right. Grandma's Chinese, next to Natalie Wood. My dad has one star in Hollywood Walk of Fame. You know something? I remember when you earned those things, you didn't have to pay for them. You actually earn them the right. old-fashioned way. Right. Now you write a check. Larry and Mike can be on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I'm thinking. Our names are 25 grand. What do you want? You want a spot? <laughs> we, we're good with it. I'm starting a Kickstarter campaign oh, right now. Oh, my God. Isn't that the truth? Get Larry his star. Oh, yeah. People are going down the, who the hell are they? <laughs> <I mean. laughs> They're saying that right now to my face. <laughs> so if you were on the radio right now, what would you be talking about? Would you not? Would you want to avoid talking politics? It, I can't. I can't because people just automatically get to it. I, I've guest hosted, really want to talk about the problem with families, the problem, you know, going on in the world today with 20 million children going to bed without that's a father. That's become your passion. And are you turned, always, are you turned it always, off of politics? always was, yeah. but nobody let me get nobody to it. Nobody would want you to do that. You know, it, nobody, oh, no, let's talk about your dad. Let's talk about politics. No, I know politics really very, very well. I would consult with anybody who wants me to consult. But I will not endorse because the second I endorse, they're going to say, well, it's like Ronald Reagan gave the blessing to my campaign. I can't allow someone to do that. Call me up, have me consult with you. I certainly will. People always talk about Ronald Reagan being the great communicator. Ronald Reagan did 26 plays at Eureka College. What do you learn when you take an acting class at college? How to communicate. Yes. How to talk in front of an audience. Thank you very much. How to wrap them around your finger. It's not not brain surgery, but what happens, politicians want to believe they've got all the answers. And they don't want to learn any new tricks. And Ronald Reagan really knew who he was, very comfortable in who he was. And as I tell people, he made friends of enemies, not enemies of friends. Can I ask you if you like anybody out there right now? Or do you not want to say any names? No, I like... No, I, I tell you what. I like... Any of the sitting or former sitting governors, I, I think the reality is that if you're a member of the Senate, member of the House, even though you might be good and you say the right things, by definition, you're partisan. I agree with you. Where yeah. a governor has to learn to put people together mm-hmm. to get things done, and that means you have to work with everybody in the room. I tell people, I said, my father, when I go speak to Republican groups, I said, would you even nominate my father today? And they all look at me in shock. I said, wait a minute. Let's say he's going to run for president of the United States. Would you, let's say you're going to nominate him, or he wants to be that. You only know him as what? As a governor, not as anything else, because he hasn't been president yet. Mm-hmm. I said, so would you nominate someone who raised taxes as governor? 
sign an abortion bill as governor, sign no-fault divorce as governor. I said, did the Republican Party finally get to a point where they actually will nominate a union leader? And it was a Screen Actors Guild? I said, you really think about it. We spend more time in the Republican Party trying to find ways to kick people off the bus than bring them onto a bus. If every Republican voted for the Republican nominee, they would still lose. The only way you win is having a message that's going to bring other people, in fact, to the table, which is what Ronald Reagan had. And in order to get things done, you have to work with everybody in the room. You can be conservative, you can be liberal, but if you don't talk to anybody, Bill Clinton, liberal, but work with Newt Gingrich. Yep. Ronald my, Reagan. This is what, that's what my wife talks about all the time, and it's true. I mean, it, it, the again, we were talking about Reagan being the last guy who really was able to, you know, mm-hmm. get both sides behind him. Bill Clinton was maybe the last guy to actually get something done because he was willing to work with and had somebody who was willing to work with New Gingrich. Yeah. And they finally, it, it might have been tougher bringing him to the table, but he came to the table. For whatever the reason was, he came to the table. Welfare reform. Balanced budget. What a concept. All those things happen. Ronald Reagan, as President of the United States, largest tax break in American history. But who carried the legislation to the House? Tip O'Neill. Mm-hmm. How'd that happen? Yeah. So, again, I think governors do a better job of finding ways to bring people to the room and to the table and move things forward. You're never going to get everything you want, but you're going to move the ball forward. Partisans don't move it very much at all. Are we so divided that it's irreparable? Is it going to just, what's it going to take? One of the problems is too much media. Oh boy. I believe too much media. Right on brother. Talk radio. I was in for 26 years, yeah. but the reality of it is you have, both parties, to an extent, frozen by what's going to be said about them the next day in their own media. Right. So the left, we have, we have to pick a side. The left basically. looks at MSNBC. What are they saying? The right looks at Rush, Sean, Mark, and the rest of them. Fox, yeah. I mean, does does anybody not believe we need an immigration plan in the United States of America? But you're not going to see one because the Republicans are scared to death of saying anything because they don't know what's going to be said about them tomorrow. I was talking to a member of Congress about immigration, about coming up with an immigration plan, because you cannot walk across the United States of America and talk to an Hispanic who does not love Ronald Reagan. You could ask that same Hispanic about the Republican Party, and they don't like the Republican Party. It's just a fact, because the only noise they hear is get out of my country. That's the only noise they hear. They don't hear anything else. And I was talking to this member of Congress about coming up with a plan, an immigration plan, and they looked at me and said, Mike, that's a great idea. But what do you think Laura Ingram will say? <laughs> and you're going like, huh? But that's the mentality. They're so frozen. What's going to be said about them tomorrow and the phone's ringing because the conservatives want the phones to ring that ultimately nothing gets done. Mm-hmm. And there lies well, well, it's media, it's social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the things that has definitely drastically changed since you got off oh, the yeah. radio is is the ability for every human being to be a critic within seconds of anything that's being said. And what gains momentum is the funniest or snarkiest or most negative or even, you know, it doesn't even have to be true. <laughs> it can be have a nugget of truth, and that's enough. No. Um, yeah. and, 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 and people... And it's like on Twitter, you, you say something. I mean, the attacks come back at you in a heartbeat. I'll, I'll tweet and say, well, I, I think what Rand Paul said the other day was really good. Why do you hate Ted Cruz? <laughs> huh? What? <laughs> How come you don't mention Sarah Palin? Huh? What? 
Hey, like the other day, this whole thing went down in Garland, Texas. And I, I simply tweeted, I said, what did they expect? I mean, what did they expect? Uh, we're going to have a free speech event, and we're going to have a contest on cartoons of Muhammad. <laughs> Gosh, I hope nothing happens. <laughs> and, and then they say, oh, two bad guys dead and one of the good guys just wounded. And you go, okay, but what did you expect right, to happen? Right. I mean, really? Well, you're against free speech. I said, no, I'm against stupidity. Yeah. I really am. I mean, I, I said, Pope John Paul and, and John, or Pope John Paul said many, many years ago, he said, in America, we have many rights, but with rights come responsibility. And what we've done is we've given up our responsibility to hiding behind rights. You sure you don't want to be back on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I would, if I could, no, I would, I would do it if the right thing came yeah. down the line, I would do it or sit there and be in a position like what we're doing now. Well, isn't it, um, it's interesting because it, it, you mentioned Clinton and, and some of the other politicians who have been in, in public office, especially presidents, who find that once they have had that position, they actually have more leverage once they leave office, that they can actually get things done. Yeah. They're not so concerned about the things they say and who they work with because what are you going to do? You can't not elect me from life. <laughs> you know, mm. I'm, I'm going to continue to do that. Do you feel like you're having more impact on things you care about now that you're not in a media spotlight? Of some when, sort? when I go out and speak, I mean, I get, I get standing ovations. The Republican Party gets what I say, but then they're also, in many ways, fearful of taking a stand. Mm-hmm. But I'm the guy, you'll love this, I'm the guy who goes to speak to 400 conservatives in, in Florida, West Palm Beach, and I'm in this room, and the, we always like to affix blame, why we win or why we lose. We lost because... You know, and and I was saying to him, I said, you know, when Ronald Reagan was the president of the United States, this party was much more inclusive than it is today. Today it's become exclusive. But I said, I don't think you all believe that. So maybe this will help. I then invite all the blacks and Hispanics in the room. Would you now please rise? And they all looked at each other. I said, you know, it's the only blacks and Hispanics standing are actually serving you breakfast. Have you ever thought about having them at the breakfast table? Or, or when I was in Minnesota earlier this year in speaking. And I said, it's interesting. Chris Christie wins, you know, wins this election by 60%. And we're arguing about his conservatism. I said, wait a minute. He get, wins 60% of the vote, 51% of the Hispanic vote, 52% of the female vote, which is exactly what Republicans need to get elected presidency of the United States. But he's not conservative enough. And I, I looked at Michelle Bachman, who was there in Minnesota, I said to Michelle, Michelle, you're not going to get elected in New Jersey. It's New Jersey. I mean, come on. What name a conservative getting elected in New Jersey? I said, next you're going to tell me there's corruption in politics in New Jersey, right? <laughs> Who would have thunk it? But this is, this is the stuff we go through. And sometimes I just sit back and go, what are we thinking? Yeah. What are we thinking? And, and Ronald Reagan didn't think that way. But yet. There are people out there who would like, they want to recreate my father in their image and likeness right. instead of who he was. He would be a rhino, Republican name only, in many circles today. But and I would be a rhino if I went on the air and started talking. Well, you're just, you know, like the people attacking me. You're against free speech because you said what you said about Garland, Texas. No, I'm not against free speech. I'm against stupidity. <laughs> Common sense is good. Hello? Common sense is good. I was talking to a police officer yesterday. I played in a golf tournament. 
uh, for Glendale Police. And, and the captain up there said, you know, you, you keep some punching somebody in the nose. Don't be surprised when they punch back. Exactly. Do you watch... Uh... Do you watch? Do you watch much TV? Do you watch House of Cards? Have you watched that? Yeah, you know when I watch House of Cards when I'm on a long flight going somewhere because I can watch like eight of them in a row, right. Type thing, and watch House of Cards. Oh, the acting is phenomenal. Are, I enjoy watching. Do they? Watching. I mean, obviously there are some extremes in it. Do they? Oh, have, yeah. Do they get the Washington sensibility though? Pretty close, you think? Well, they, I mean, there there are power brokers in Washington. Yeah. I mean, that's the way it there is. There are people who think that way for sure, right? Yeah, there's power yeah. brokers. I mean, it's not to the extreme. That he has it, but there are power no, brokers. No pushing people in front of trains, I would hope. No, no. Spoiler alert, by the way. <laughs> it happened in season one. Get over it. <laughs> yeah, it happened. Um, what but else? It's, but it's a, it's a great show. What else do you watch? watch? You know, it's, Falcon uh, Crest reruns? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Falcon Crest reruns. That's what we watch. Over and over. No, but my wife and I, she she likes watching the rally show. So we watch Survivor oh, and Amazing Race. You poor thing. And, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Watch, and, and so on. I, I watch uh, uh, Person of Interest. Enjoy oh, watching okay. that show. All right. Uh, Blacklist. Ice Spader is such Spader. a great... He, oh, he's, he's so much fun. He man. is a great actor. I, I will never forget, though, the wedding in Alaska in the, in the last uh, in, in the, uh, uh, in the last show of his last series he did with uh, when he was the Boston, lawyer. Boston, Boston Legal. Boston Legal. When they, got me, when they had Scalia married them in Alaska. <laughs> I am about to fall off the couch. That's one thing you don't see that much anymore i mean you didn't used to see is high profile political figures still in office doing bits on tv yeah, i mean yeah. biden is on parks and rec and uh but, but I, you know what is amazing to me world with me people like you radio or whatever they have an automatic what they think i'm gonna think but that's how that's that's the current model of anything mm-hmm. which is I'm going to make an immediate snap judgment on you, and then I'm going to let the world know what I what it is. Oh yeah, and my daughter goes through it, my son goes through sure. it, same thing. Yeah. Oh, all the time. Well, Ashley, why do you need to work? Well, because I need to work. I'm 32, and she teaches school and does a great. She's a great teacher, great teacher. Well, um, any thoughts on the, what the current generation is going to be like when they become, uh, let's say, when the 20s and 30s become our age ish? Well, you know, what, uh, what I worry about is uh, two years ago, uh, I was headed to Normandy. I was asked to raise the uh, American flag at the American Cemetery in Normandy. Playing golf with a young man, 28 years old, managed a restaurant over in Toluca Lake. And uh, so I was kind of, hey, you know, I'm doing tomorrow. I'm flying to, to France, and Sunday I'm raising the flag at the American Cemetery at Normandy. And this young man looks at me and he says, why is there an American Cemetery at Normandy? Oh, no. And I thought to myself, by the end of the round, you know what I thought to myself? He's the normal, not the abnormal. I bet you did a survey. People would not know why there's an American cemetery at Normandy. They wouldn't, they wouldn't know. I was in Berlin. That's what caused me to start doing and this what I'm is, doing. There. By the way, this, that's not a low-profile thing. I mean, that's been, even just in movies and pop culture alone, that event is is ingrained in our culture and there's a there's a generation oh. that's totally missing that oh i asked him i said do you ever see saving private ryan right. no no longest day no. no i said did you think uh like uh d-day was the day your report card came home <laughs> is that what you thought and the guy just looked at me but you, did know, you know what d-day was uh Had he heard no of that no before? idea no idea and and a couple of years before that which caused me to do what i i'm doing now in at saint mary glee's at normandy but a couple of years before that, I'm 
I'm in Berlin, and I run into a young teenager, and I say to him, I said, what do you know about the uh, Berlin Wall? Well, the Americans put it up to keep the communists out of their oh, sector. No. I say, excuse me? Well, the Americans put it up to keep the communists out of their sector. I went, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. You know, you know just, we, we always gripe about the education system in America, but you know something? We're not educating our own kids at home. Yeah. We gripe about the school, but what are we doing at home? I had, a, I had somebody introduce me one night, a preacher saying, we'd change all this in America today if we put prayer back in the school. That's what we need. This man, our speaker tonight, his father agreed that we need prayer in the school, and my God, I'm for it, too. Let's hear it for prayer in the school. Everybody, yeah, baby, they all stood up. They're all applauding. And then they introduced me to speak. So I go to speak, and there are about 400 people. And, uh, and I'm speaking, and I finally get to a point in the speech. I say to them, I said, um, Gosh, let me ask you a question. Pastor, I hope you like this, sir. And I said, how many of you in this room right now have uh, children K through 8? And I think there was about 70 or 80 hands went up K through 8. And I said, that's great. Children are wonderful. I have a couple myself. And I said, how many of you today prayed with your children before they left for school? No hands went up. I looked at Pastor. I said, the problem isn't there isn't prayer in the school. They're in prayer in the home. You know? Or you take the abortion issue. We want to point a finger at the Democrats like it's their fault that people are getting abortions. 80% of abortions are done in young girls who profess a belief in God. Shouldn't the question be, why are our children getting abortions? And my dad's the one who says this all starts at your dinner table. You know, and we're not talking to our own kids. And, and I go tell these people when I speak at abortion gatherings, I said, I tell them, I said, listen. The problem here is your children are more fearful of mom and dad than they are of the abortionist. Yeah. 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 And I said, so how many of you here can, can quote John 316? I said, if you don't know what it is, it's the guy on Sunday at the football game with, with the, the red, white, blue. With the ren- rainbow wig on. Yeah, and the, in the, in and the, the side, John 316. That's John 316. Right. And I said, when fathers start getting on crosses for their own children's sins, as Christ got on a cross for our sins— we will begin to change the dynamic of our daughters being more fearful of mom and dad than the abortionist. And you know what happens? I usually get standing ovations. But most of the time, you'll invite a guy who's conservative to come speak to you who will hit all the talking points and accomplish nothing. He'll get a paycheck, and you've learned nothing. But I want to at least have these people start thinking really what they can do. And I get these young girls they bring in to give their testimony about I was going to get an abortion and this happened, that happened, I didn't. They come up to me and say, thank you for telling our story. Because it is their story. Yeah. And it's like, I was afraid to tell, you know, I was afraid to tell anybody I was sexually abused as an eight-year-old. I was afraid to tell people, you know, when my dad was running for governor and president of the United States, there were nude photographs of me that were out there in America that were taken to me when I was eight and nine years old. And, and I was made to have to develop those. And that man put his hand on my shoulder and said, wouldn't your mother like to have a copy? I walked away from God, my mother, my father, everybody, until I finally told someone, my parents, in 1987. You know, and those photographs, when, when that man died, Don Havlick died, gosh, I think in like 2003, 2004, sister-in-law sent me a letter and said, Don finally died. He was as evil today he died as when he was taking photographs of you. And, Michael, you can now finally rest. We were able to destroy the photographs. Those photographs were taken in 1953 and weren't destroyed till 2003, 2004. These people traded like business cards. Yeah, yeah. So I understand when you're fearful of sharing something with your family, with your loved ones. Uh, it, it's, it's a terrible fear to have. And so I try to really 
talk to people and relate to them so they understand it, so they can help the loved ones in their lives. Let people know where they can find out more about your your current work and your foundation and the stuff you're doing in that world. Uh, Reagan, Legacy, Reagan Legacy Foundation, R-E-A-G-A-N. People still think it's Reagan. And I keep telling people he worked for Reagan. Um, Reagan Foundation.org is the foundation that we have. You can go online there and look at all the photographs, things that we're doing there. My Twitter handle is at Reagan World. That's a great place to find me there. And follow me at Reagan World where I'm speaking, what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, and, and so on and so forth. And, and really kind of follow me there. Uh, you can go on Amazon. I have books out. Twice Adopted is my story about living through sexual abuse and child pornography and, and what have you. I also have uh, books on my father that I've written. Uh, and you can just uh, just put in the search me out, Mike yeah, Reagan, you'll see things. Google Michael Reagan. Google Michael Reagan. Well, don't Google me. That might tickle. <laughs> Everybody could use a good Yeah, tickle. don't believe everything you see at Google either. Trust me. Yeah. Oh. Really? Oh, yeah, really? Uh. It's so great to catch up with you. Oh, it's this great is to so see you. Good. Uh, I, I miss seeing you. You have been the de facto uh, mayor of Sherman Oaks for such a long time, and you're now not here anymore. Well, no, the house is still. I still have the one house. Okay. You know, you know how we became empty nesters? How we left. <laughs> for those people, oh, really? For those people who are trying to figure, how the heck do we get away from our kids? Don't wait for them to leave. Yeah, that's right. You leave. Don't. <laughs> when are they getting out of the house? Yeah. You just leave one day. Oh, yeah. No, we left middle of the night. <laughs> they woke up the next morning. There's nothing on the kitchen table. Nothing there. You know, not even a note. Yeah, Mom en- and dad were gone. Enjoy the house. Yeah. It's your responsibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you pay the bills. That's kind of brilliant. So, so we still have the house there, and we have the new house that we bought. And uh, we live there, and we're doing great. The kids are doing great. We... Uh, you know, it's it's great that Cameron and Ashley are are super and and all that. So yeah. we're we're doing well. I'm glad you um, I'm glad you have a real life, and it sounds like you're doing some important stuff. And uh, it's great to hear from you. Yeah, pray for seriously, folks. But pray for the children out there because it's again, like I said, Larry, 20 million kids will go to bed tonight without a father in the home. Yeah. Yeah. And you could talk all the politics you want, but the reality of it is, you don't have that in the home. You're missing something. Yeah. Thank you, man. Thank you. Get a monkey. Get a monkey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.